Hey there, beverage enthusiasts. My name is Javier Morquecho, and I'm the founder of SpecialtySodas.com, where you can find the largest selection of craft soda and specialty beverages anywhere in the U.S., as well as this Specialty Sodas podcast, where ambitious entrepreneurs and leaders in the industry come to share their story. My mission is to build a community within the industry so we can all meet and learn from one another and connect for meaningful relationships. I'm joined today by Terry Frischman, the founder and CEO of the boutique consultancy Culinist, uh, which inspires and helps food startups and more established culinary businesses profitably excel. Hi, Terry. Uh, thank you. Uh, or welcome. Thank you for being here. Hi, Javier. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and in today's episode, uh, I want to talk about how food and beverage companies can strengthen their foundation and profitably move forward. But first, uh, I want to start by asking, what do you see as the most common challenge that food and beverage companies face uh, when they come to Colonist? And also, what is the environment in the industry right now? Sure. Well, I think... Um a lot of people who come who are early stage are really trying to figure out how to um, define their concept and profitably launch, or at least launch with the opportunity to eventually become profitable. Uh, people who are more established in the industry are typically learning, looking for ways to profitably grow. So whether it's um, considering ways to improve their margins or to increase their volume, and there's lots of different ways to accomplish that. Uh, your second question was about the times. So I, I'm very excited about the times we're living in. I think that uh, there's a lot going on where um, there are emerging megatrends, and I have this whole philosophy about megatrends we can talk about later, that are influencing opportunities and driving entrepreneurship, innovation, and disruption in the food and beverage industry, which is really exciting. I kind of view it as a time like the wild, wild west with both opportunity and also fear um, there's a lot of companies, too, that are going out of business for logistical and um, financial reasons. So I think also that it's a time of a lot of consumer attitudes that we can talk about in a little bit that are um, influencing both opportunities and risks in the industry. Oh, that's really interesting. So, yeah, I do want to go into that. And uh, before we do, can you just give a description of what is Colonist? Sure. So Cullinest is a culinary-focused um, business that provides both consulting and educational um, opportunities for food and beverage entrepreneurs and more established companies. And also, um, let's go into your background a little bit. So um, before you started the company, uh, you worked at Kraft General Foods, right? Uh, can you talk about what you did there? Sure. I was in Classic package goods marketing, which means that you're sort of like the center pin helping to run all the different areas and work with others as a team in all different functionalities. And while there, I launched a $20 million business that was profitable in its first year and also um, was the team leader and product manager for a $120 million business. So I learned a tremendous amount that um, leveraged my Columbia MBA that I had from before that and my international experience I had before that when I worked at Newsweek Magazine uh, into my consulting company working in the food and beverage industry. 
And, uh, what do you feel, um, I guess, you learned most that you took from either your business school or uh, your work experience that you now apply in your current business? It's a way of thinking. It's a way of approaching and solving problems um, combined with my personality, which is very positive and optimistic and wanting to make things work and being action-oriented. So in terms of what I learned, um, I learned how to uh, define what really are the problems and issues by doing industry immersion, by talking um, to key influencers or accounts and assessing the marketplace, <clears throat> excuse me, assessing the marketplace and then leveraging that. So I can use that for so many things. I, I also, actually one thing I love doing was I used to run brainstorming sessions at Craft. And I brainstorm all the time with my clients and with my students. Um, I do, I'm very, very strong in concept development, problem solving, uh, creative solutions. Okay. And uh, at what point did you decide, okay, I want to start my own company and do this uh, on your own? Sure. Um, well, I'm also a believer in life balance, work balance. Uh, but I'm also, like many people who went to craft and were in product management, we... Um, work very hard all the time, 24-7, even though I'm partying all the time too, 24-7. So um, what led me to it was I wanted to have a family, and working at um, Craft, I worked, you know, I, I took my work home with me and was always thinking about what I wanted to do professionally, and I knew I wanted to balance a family, and so I decided I wanted to do something that uh, I could build for myself, that I could work as hard as I wanted and have more control but also help others. So I immediately, when I left Jetcraft, but while also being able to eventually have a family and juggle things around that. So while um, starting on my own, I first started also teaching at NYU, um, uh, teaching things related to business plans. And I, I had a wonderful course I still teach occasionally on what I wish I knew before starting my food business, bringing in other people, as well as um, how to launch and market food products. I've you know, food meeting, culinary businesses, um, which I've been teaching, you know, since then at multiple, multiple places. But what drove me was really um, a desire to have that flexibility and also the upside of running my own company. And um, I really found, too, that I, I love the consulting side and the education side and so have merged the two ever since. And it gave me flexibility, which was great. Yeah, and so you started the company back in 1990. Yes, it was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. I've had so I've seen so much change in the industry. It's been really fascinating. It's exciting. Yeah, and that's something really exciting to talk about because you do have a really good perspective on what did change in the industry. So, what were the times back then, or what did you notice sure. about the environment back then, and how does it compare to now? Sure. Oh, it's fascinatingly different. So when I was at Kraft, the amount of money that we would spend, for example, on packaging was in the hundreds of thousands. Um, and we're talking a long time ago. Uh, the industry was such that when I started on my own, I was shocked that there were only a handful of companies that were over a million dollars in sales. I, I just was so surprised by that and saw tremendous opportunity. I also, the landscape was also extremely different in terms of um, back when I first started, there were very few places that traditionally sold specialty or natural products. And there were, there was very, and private label really didn't exist. Um, 
So today what's been fascinating is seeing how there are unlimited opportunities for where products can be sold, creative solutions, which I've really had fun helping to move forward, um, and also different um, niching that I was so excited about when I was at Kraft and kept thinking that these things are potentially out there and or should be out there, leveraging trends from other countries, even things like raising and snacking. You know, back then, people ate traditionally three course, three meals a day and had a snack. And people traditionally, during, let's say, dinner, which was the largest meal because families were eating together, would have um, the entree as the protein and the meat and then starch and a vegetable. And today we are in such a different world where that grazing snacking I used to talk about then, where in, let's say, Italy there'd be antipasta and China would have dim sum and Mexico would have antihotos and Spain would have tapas. Today um, you have uh, that concept of starting with something smaller, being able to graze and have a little bit with maybe you share, you have a couple appetizers and share dessert instead, um, is, is really the pattern that people have been moving towards. And for me, it's, it's actually as a marketer and business professional, it's really interesting because I think of it as a way to reduce risk, that by stacking and greasing on something, it um, allows someone to have a small purchase or a taste without committing to something bigger. And so having smaller sizes of things also taps into that uh, from a different perspective. It's interesting because it's really a risk thing. When you get to sample something like a, a beverage, you can sample it. That's something that um, helps you then say, wow, I really like it. What does it cost subconsciously? And then you make a value equation and say, wow, it's worth it because of the branding, the flavor, the health benefits, you know, how it makes me feel or whatever. So the industry has really changed tremendously. Um, you can, even back then, nutrition facts panels wasn't something that, companies legally had to have on their packaging. And there was a real uproar because people felt that it was going to be very negative, um, that it wouldn't look, the packaging wouldn't look good. <laughs> and then in addition, so, but today there's recent studies saying how critical that information is because not just the desire for transparency, but people want to know what they're putting into their bodies. They have a lot of issues and concerns. There are so many other changes too, you know, in terms of not just availability, variety, uh, the niching. I, I used to say when I first started teaching that like in the beverage industry, water was one of the highest volume items that, that was mass market but didn't have specialty in it. And I used to tell in my classes people, you know, if you look at the things that are the largest volume categories um, but that have the least specialization in them, that's where the greatest opportunity lies. And look today at what's happened even just in water with everything from, you know, functionality, uh, like a Vita water, to the idea of, um, you know, overlaying mission by having, you know, lines where you feel good because you get to choose where the product uh, profit is, is going towards or a percentage of it. Yeah. Can you tell us about uh, how consumers currently feel about uh what they're putting into their body, or uh, how do they feel or think about the products? Sure. Um, well, overall, you know, you have different segments of consumer, but in general, uh, there's a much higher awareness of a lot of things about, you know, obviously health and well, health and wellness benefits. Um, 
people are looking at food differently. On one hand, you've got a very large segment that is passionate about food and wants things that taste great, um, that are excited about trying things that are new. So I think that um, clearly taste is still number one, in my opinion, for everything. But sometimes people are willing to give up taste when they feel there's other benefits. Um, so people really care about what they should and should not be eating. There's a lot of confusion out there because, you know, we're told on one hand this is good, then we're told it's not good. Um, even the sweeteners are really important. You know, sugar has been vilified and then um, has come back as good and, and uh, there's been substitutes, you know, whether it was agave was considered great and then agave had issues and, you know, maple syrup and honey, which, you know, there's pros and cons to everything. And then you have all the other ones that have the OLs at the end and so forth. Um, but sugar is something that's important. So when consumers are buying, they're not sure what they're getting. And they want to know that what they're getting is good for them, but they think one thing is good or not. So with concerns about like obesity and food allergies, um, those are things that are impacting what people are looking for on packaging. Uh, where their food is coming from is also really important, the source. People are concerned about the truth of what they're getting and if there's anything that's at risk with it. So, you know, ingredients from China, for example, people are often concerned about. How uh, food makes them feel is another big thing that people care about. You know, does it give them an energy spike? Does it relax them? Is it something that, you know, helps with inflammation or indigestion or, um, you know, overall feeling good? And, and interestingly, the millennials are more aware of when they eat something, the direct relationship of how they feel. So if you're targeting them versus people who are, um, you know, older than that, uh, are more inclined to, to look at the nutrition facts and saying, this is what I should be eating. They, they, they're just not that same connection. Um, so what also is really in food or isn't food is a big concern to people, which also leads to that point about transparency. So it's not just um, the idea that there might be ingredients people don't want, such as I'm allergic to this or I have sensitivities to that, or I don't think that's good for me, but also the whole issue of food fraud. So with food fraud, is this okay? The food yes. fraud, yeah. So food fraud is a fascinating area because this is really causing people to be concerned about what's happening. Um, for example, a third of fish aren't really what they're labeled, and you know they might someone might be saying something is wild when in fact it's farm, you know, uh, farm fresh in a sense, shall we say, uh, farm raised. Um, people are concerned about uh, things saying one thing and being another. In terms of sugar, too, I mean, there was just that article uh, that came out about the Harvard research that historically said, you know, fats were issues um, and not sugar as much because they were paid and there was a bias in their study. And so, you know, a lot of people are very concerned about things. So the whole movement towards calories, for example, and, and people wanting to know how many calories are in something, and the FDA actually putting on the bottles, telling people in the future, you know, manufacturers in the future that it's not just by serving size, but it's the total calories that you need to put on the package, is indicative of this whole consumer behavior of eating everything but being concerned about what they're eating and what, you know, the value is of what they're consuming. And so you brought something up really important about, like, the consumer's trust in the brand and the product and the yeah. ingredients and that there's a need for transparency. But with transparency, uh, is there a distinguishing, is there a, is there something to distinguish between the transparency of the product versus the transparency of the company? Absolutely. They're both important. 
Um, there was actually a study that just came out um, that's from Label Insight that's all about transparency. And they basically say that 94% of consumers have increased brand loyalty if brands are 100% transparent. And um, that goes beyond just the nutrition facts panel ingredient line to the story and the company. And I think people are really concerned today about companies, like the whole industry overall in terms of changes, like the major top three mass market companies in the food and beverage industry, I think have lost like 3% market share. And that's because consumers don't necessarily trust them. They want things that have cleaner ingredients that are more natural, even though natural doesn't have a legal definition. They want things that make them feel good. And they, and they know that these companies, and you know, they don't want the high fructose corn syrup and so on. And so you have a lot of beverage companies and others coming out with products that aren't like that. But what's happened is because those major manufacturers are needing to replace the sales, um, they're acquiring these smaller, innovative, and disruptive companies. They're also, um, you know, merging and creating their own brands. So there's a sense that you don't know when you're buying a product if it's really from that major company that maybe holds values you don't also hold. And um, so knowing the story of the product is part of the transparency. Were, were you making a joke also about transparency in terms of the clearness of a package? Um, because actually, in general, consumers want to see what's inside. Um, but branding is really important too. So having the packaging um, be accurate to your brand voice is really important. Um, you know, with beverages, generally, it's wonderful to be able to see them. And so people like it. But on the other hand, you know, when you think about um, like uh, brands where they have a sleeve covering the entire bottle and you can't actually see through it, that also creates a, a tremendous voice and, and um, image that might connect a lot with people. So in general, though, I say that people do like to see what they're buying. They like to know what's in it, and they like to visually see it. And if it's attractive or it has something like interesting ingredient inlays, you know, like when uh, you have like the, the bubbles in a drink or something that are um, from the Asian culture, you know, I think people really are interested in that. Yeah, so just as a, like a side note that I thought of, like at what point is it being too transparent? Is there a point of transparency that you should show and there could be too much transparency in a business? I think that people have different desire for information and there's a point in which people only want to hear so much and others want to hear more. So I think the key is to have that transparency available but not necessarily put it all out there at one time. You know, you can have different things that are transparent and then let it's like when you write a newspaper article or, you know, write something, uh, typically you put the most important things first and then as you go down at the media, um, if, if you need to cut something at the bottom, it, the article still works. It's the same way with when you're targeting your audience, you want to match everything for a win-win. So you want to match what's the most important things for transparency that they care about. But having everything there, I think there's a lot of customers, a growing population that that really likes that and feels trust because trust is missing in our world today you know we're living in a time where not only you know the major companies have put things in and there's lying out there with fraud and even with the sugar um, for example that I just mentioned um, with that those studies but we're in a time of fear because 
you know, we're having, there's terrorism, there's global warming, there's um, political uh, divisiveness in, in our country in particular, but elsewhere, uh, people are angry and upset, you know, the whole thing with the Tea Party and, you know, with the 1% and the greater um, financial gap in our country, you know, with the unemployment, all these things, you know, and also with the rise of illnesses. Um, I don't mean to be depressive, <laughs> you know. Uh, I'm saying this more to say this is sort of part of the foundation out there that's causing people to feel the way they feel and to be concerned, you know, and to, you know, on one hand make a difference because they're concerned about the future of our world. Um, you know, is there going to, you know, look at North Korea, you know, there's all these things that everyone's hearing about or reading about or experiencing in their own lives on different parts of this. And so being able to trust and believe in the products and the companies behind those products and the people behind those companies, and that's really the key, is the people behind them, their story, their reason why, really resonates with people. And I think what happens is, you know, when a company, for example, gets acquired by a larger company, and that company initially had that story and the people and the realness, it can lose that and then there can be problems and there's, you know. Yeah, so that's also interesting too because you mentioned companies are now investing uh, in these smaller brands that already had developed a level right. of trust with their uh, customers and uh, they're also creating like spin-off companies to try to um, emulate right. this. So... Do you think that that's working out, or um, like if a company, if if a smaller company is being acquired by a larger one, does that affect anything with the transparency, or what do you think about? Um, sometimes it's transparent, and sometimes it's not. So, in my, I I think it depends on how the acquisition is handled, and if the acquisition includes, which it typically does for a period of time, the original owners, they, um, they're more inclined to try and maintain the spirits and value that they wanted. So what you have is examples of, you know, like General Mills has acquired a lot of companies, and for example, and um, they most recently acquired this small company that was only two years old called Epic, which... Um, does really, it's really kind of interesting nose-to-tail products. It started with a, a vegan couple who one of them uh, learned, you know, he really needed more protein and fats, you know, that were from meat. And they ended up shifting to this very strong, you know, meat-focused line that was like also leveraging other trends because meat is protein and people love high protein and beverages and foods and so forth. Um, in addition, it was leveraging, you know, fruits, nuts, and seeds, which is also a big trend. And so it sort of disrupted the bar category, but then they went into other areas. But the fact that a company like that who has such strong personal values and points of views on things and, you know, they shifted, but they're still really strong to what they wanted to accomplish is acquired by a major company and then stays with them and wants to stay with them and work with them together with innovation and new products, to me says a lot about sort of where the industry is heading. Another thing in terms of transparency and where the industry is heading is when you look at a company like Trader Joe's and you see how their whole intent has been to, in a sense, brand everything private labeling with their own brand and take initially the market leaders that were in, out there with their name on it, but eventually their own products. That's a lot of what's happening with the industry in terms of the larger sales 
opportunity places are moving towards their own brands or their own private label. And um, that makes it very difficult for a lot of other companies that are coming out. So the transparency of being able to have your story and your brand there is really important, but we're dealing with these larger future restrictions, which is leading to another disruption of all different sales channels, way beyond what I was alluding to at the beginning when I meant, you know, you can buy food and beverages at every place from pharmacies like Dwayne Reed or CVS to bookstores like Barnes and Noble to, you know, airports and hotels to hospitals and everywhere, not just, I'm not talking physicists, I'm talking retail to the consumer, you know, with shops and, you know, food is, and beverages are available everywhere, even in, um, uh, obviously, what's, I just blanked on the word, but the um, vending machines and so forth, but in much more creative ways today. And now you've got all these delivery services and you've got pop-ups everywhere, you know, there's opening more opportunities for people to have access to food and beverages than they've ever had before. You know, not just markets and farmers markets and, you know, uh, stands everywhere, but there's so much more opportunity and that's affecting the larger companies too and their market share. So being transparent and being able to go to new places and find new ways to reach your customer and share your story and connect with them to build brand loyalty is really important. And for companies that aren't uh, establishing this trust and connection and brand voice, uh, what's happening to these companies? People are losing share. I think it's really hard because, um, you know, people still want, the number one thing people still want, and it varies, but is value, a value proposition. So is it worth it? And the story is part of, the, of is it worth it or not? You know, some people have much greater price sensitivity than others. So if you have a mass market, let's say soda beverage that is all artificial, there's still going to be customers for it because if they're looking for something very inexpensive and quenching that they can give their family cheaply, you know, they're still going to do that. But people are shifting more towards wanting these other things, you know. And, and it ties back um, really to what is important to your company in terms of your values, your intentions, your markets, your customers, you know, what you want, um, and matching it up where your offering works. So the mega trends I had talked to you about before, um, I believe are, are really a great way to, there's so many different ways to look at mega trends, but there's a dozen that, that I've come up with that I really think um, is great for constant innovation and disruption and the more of them that you include in your offerings, the greater resonance they'll have and I think also the greater brand loyalty and sales opportunities. Yeah, so can we talk about like what are mega trends and uh, did you come up with this as a solution to like the current environment that we're in or how did you develop these mega trends and yeah, maybe sure. you just want to talk about sure. it. So for me, um, I teach a lot. So um, when I'm teaching, one of my questions that inevitably comes up is, what are the trends? And people say all kinds of things in the classes, and it's often you know, their limited idea of what they would like to do. And what I try and do is say, you know, by stepping back and grouping these things into larger themes, that there's greater potential and also once you have one thing you say you want to do, but you look at the other things, you can start 
to see even greater opportunities. So it came out of me saying to students, for example, and also clients, okay, I understand you want gluten-free or you want low sugar or you want low fat or no fat or you want high protein or you want paleo or vegan or raw or you want Asian inspired or you want, you know, local and sustainable or you want, you know, whatever, fermented or alcohol infused or, you know, all each of these things, you know, were all great ideas, but they could be grouped together into larger megatrends, sort of like channels or silos that when you get to the top of them, all these things are like the tails underneath it. They're the buzzwords that people want, like superfoods or antioxidants, but like those, for example, fit into um, the idea of, you know, health and wellness. So the, interestingly, like I started realizing like absolute and controls was one mega trend. And it's the idea that people like portion control. They like also to know like how many grams of something is in a product. They like to know, you know, different things that allow them to have greater control in their life because often people can feel out of control. So even though not consciously they're saying that, but when you think of this large silo of absolute controls, it could be a hundred calorie snack or beverage or zero calories or like zero calories is total control. You feel like you've, you know, as well as knowing what's in the product. Um, so absolute controls was one, you know, another was the whole concept of adventure and adventure did everything from the ethnic, you know, flavors and, and, uh, different cultures, you know, what's coming up. People like trying things that are new. Um, but it also gets into spicy adventure, you know, and when we look at the beverage category, there's not a lot of spicy beverages. So to me, that's a huge opportunity that people haven't dealt with. Um, dangerous too. I mean, there's a lot of, there's people out there as a segment, but layering it a little bit who like danger. Um, you know, the idea of putting cricket flour into products today that are food based hasn't yet happened into beverages, but this idea of um, sustainability and, you know, what's happening with the world and our future food supply. So doing something like that is something that is not going to appeal to everyone. Clearly it's a small niche, but it's something that pushes out. Um, comfort is a very, very large mega trend. And when people are stressed out in times of worry, they tend to want to um, have comfort. So comfort foods, comfort drinks, comfort stories, uh, comfort graphics, comfort um, that makes you feel safe you know, is something that, you know, so if a beverage has things in it that make you feel like you had this when you were younger or, you know, so I'm just thinking of a sort of a combination. When we look at like the milk category, you know, milk has been having a tough time. It's, it's lost sales. And um, there's been a growth, however, in the milk alternatives like almond um, or other, you know, nut-based uh um, beverages and that's also a bit of adventure for people it's not just another one of values you know if you're vegan and you feel that you know you don't want to consume milk or dairy products because of the treatment of animals and you're concerned about animal welfare and health and so on um, you know it's yes it's for those people but it's also become mass market so something that you know it's leveraged this interest in alternatives and you know you have the lactose intolerant and the vegan population, but then you also have those who just like it for the flavor and really enjoy it. Um, 
So, do you want to hear more? Yeah, yeah, let's yeah, let's go through all the all the mega trends and because uh, this is really interesting. And for people who are hearing this show, they might not even be aware of these mega trends, and they might think that saying something is non-GMO or is vegan that those are the trends that they should be following. But you're showing us that those are some trends. Yeah. And, and that's not to say those aren't important because those are buzzwords that people care about. Um, but what happens is by thinking in this larger way, it allows you to create new opportunities, new ideas, and also leverage multiple megatrends to then have greater value to your customer. And the greater value offer allows you not only to get the awareness and the trial, but hopefully the repeat and the brand loyalty and the growth Going back to what we said at the beginning about, you know, people wanting to be profitable and the two ways to be profitable are margin and volume. So if we can get the volume through using these mega trends, that's part of the equation. So some of the other mega trends are, um, without doubt, convenience. And that was one thing, you know, when I was at Kraft, that was critical, was how can you make, you know, people are, were buying our products at that time because it was more convenient. And so there's lots of ways to think about convenience, you know, in terms of access to the product, uh, which has to do with delivery systems and so forth, um, to ease of use, the convenience, you know. One of the things that I've always said is that the easier something is to put into your mouth, the greater volume potential you have. And the more steps it takes to use that product, the, the lower turn and repeat there will be and frequency of use. So the beverage industry is really blessed that most of it goes directly in. I mean, there are mixes which are going to take a little bit more, you know, the whole protein powder, you know, explosion. Um, you know, that's an extra step uh, that might take more. But the idea that it's convenient and that you can add protein to anything, you can sprinkle it on your food, you can put it in your drink, you can put it in your water bottle and so forth is all helpful. Um, another big one is engagement and empowerment. And when we think about people today um, and how, on one hand, people want to be connected to others and they also want to be involved. And there's lots of studies which I have found fascinating over, you know, my professional career reading where when someone actually does something, it increases their likelihood of um, feeling a part of it. So it's the idea of you put money in a slot machine and all of a sudden, you know, you don't want to stop because you keep thinking it's about to hit. That involvement is the same thing when you have a direct mail piece and you scratch something off. And by having scratched off, you're engaged or having to take the stamp and put it somewhere else. Once you do a little bit more towards it, you feel more, it, it somehow feels more a part of who you are and what you care about somehow. And you're more likely to finish the process and, and put it back in the mail, like to respond. Uh, it's the same thing with, you know, if you do art and, you know, there's studies that have shown that People might do a piece of art, you know, a couple things, and or photography at a school, and afterwards, when they um, are told, okay, you can pick one, it's very hard for them. And then if they're told they can't have it, they feel really upset, whereas they might not have wanted it at all, and they place a much higher value on it because it's something they did. And it's this whole idea of the more you do something yourself, you care a lot more about it. It's like selfies today. Everyone's taking selfies. Why is it such an addiction for people? You know, it's fascinating because it's part of that engagement and empowerment, the whole social media area. So the more that in your beverages and in your food products and in your business offerings, you can customize them, create interactive opportunities that create involvement, you're going to increase your stickiness, shall we say, with the customer. Um, 
I've already talked earlier a little bit about grazing and snacking, and to me that's a very big trend, and not just the cultural applications of the idea of small plates and bites, but really this idea of less risk, getting people to try things, um, getting people, um, you know, to also experience maybe a flavor they wouldn't experience that isn't mass market. Though people still tend to go, as we said with the comfort one, back to the basics with just slight variations. Um, under the health and wellness, another thing too is all of the health benefits and all of the things that are better for you through your choice or your need that a person may have. So there's so many things people come up with all the time talking about things that fit into the health and wellness, but they overlap. So even if you say high protein, that might be health and wellness, but it's also the absolutes and controls. It's also the convenience and so on. Um, and it can also be quality in terms of like nutrient density and richness of what you're getting for, for each calorie that you're consuming. Um, so the quality, um, you know, I said earlier about taste being so important. Quality is critical in most situations because taste is the number one reason someone um, thinks they're about to purchase something, or at least historically it's, it's the taste. And it's also number one from a store's perspective is the packaging. If someone hasn't tasted it before, your packaging. So the quality of your communication, the quality of your ingredients, the quality of your story, are all part of what I see as quality. The quality of your process, if you're doing something different in your process, that's something that could be leveraged as a meaningful point of difference and part of your story. Um, so technology, which in a sense process is partially also under technology, technology is huge. Technology is totally disrupting um, the food and beverage industry. And if you're able to come up with a way, not just digital technology, not just apps, uh, and not just processes, but maybe questioning the steps of how something's done. So look at the juice category. You know, technology is very important in juice. There's still, it's still a bit like the wild, wild west of the juice category um, in terms of how things are being done today. But, you know, the idea of hot pressed and so on versus cold and, you know, what are the values? That's technology driven. Um, the transparency theme, um, Javier, we already spoke about, but that's sort, you know, not just what's in your product, but it's your, your sources are so important today. Um, you can differentiate your product based on, you know, ingredients, like is the ginger ginger or is the ginger from Fiji, you know, and then you could say it's exotic from the islands of, you know, Fiji or um, wherever it's from. Like I'm, I'm dealing with products like that right now that I'm identifying things that are from Hawaii or people like single estate and they like, you know, this idea, and on the other hand, local. But um, part of that transparency of your source is really about telling that story, but also letting people know where things are from. People, as I said, are scared, and by telling them things, it helps them feel like you're sharing and you're being honest with them. And you know, they want to trust you and they want to be loyal and trust the brands they're buying. Um, so the big, big picture. Uh, we talked about values before. You know, having a mission and you know this idea of. You know, is it cause marketing? There's some brands that are leveraging that, whether it's a social cause, an environmental cause, you know, sustainability. Um, but the big, big, big picture over all the megatrends is value. And these all help you achieve value. And so the idea of, as I said, is it worth it? So a value to a user is a lot more than just price. And, you know, no one wants to compete on price because it's, first of all, it's not good for your margins. And second of all, it's hard to be profitable on price. You want to have people purchasing you for all these other reasons. Is that helpful? I hope yeah, you enjoyed no, that. that. No, that's really helpful. And, so uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of them. And so let me just uh, go.
go through all of them that you mentioned. So the first one is absolutes and controls. Next is adventure, then comfort, convenience, uh, engaging and, and empowerment, grazing or snacking, health and wellness, quality, technology, transparency, value to the user, and values. So um, you've identified these mega trends, and you mentioned that it's important to try to incorporate as many of them as you can. Yes. Uh, is there some that are more important than others? Well, I think it depends, first of all, on what the offering is and who you're targeting. So give me an example, and I'll tell you which ones I think would be most relevant. Um, so I, well, okay, so then going back into that, it's about identifying your customers first and trying to Actually, understand Actually, not them. necessarily. That's a really excellent point you're saying because, uh, for example, yesterday I was running a course on um, food products business, strategic planning, and it was on concept development. And my guest speaker um, is, a, is a matcha-based beverage that was talking and in the class, each person was supposed to be working on developing their concepts. And interestingly, with each one, I said, you know, it's the idea of the tail wagging the dog. What is really the core concept? What is really what's driving your business model? What's really driving your concept? And in some cases, it could be the customer. In some cases, it could be um, the, the story of the person. In some cases, it could be the opportunity that um, some ingredients have that have functional benefits that become the center. Because you can start a company and have it go in many different directions, you know, depending on what the company is about. So when it comes to the megatrends, I mean, some are, are really absolutely global and, you know, health and wellness, convenience, quality, value. I would say for everything, no matter what, I would say value is the number one at the top. Value is the one that all of these build up to, so it's the it's worth it concept. Um, but quality to me is, is really critical, but that might not necessarily be important depending on what's being offered. So I, I think they all have different values, but I would say that it depends on the situation. In that class, for example, it's different. So I'll, I'll talk about Meta Matcha, for example, Alex Brass. Um, a young upstart, only two years out of college, and um, he wasn't at all in the food or beverage industry, but uh, discovered that when he had tried some matcha and was tasting it, he didn't like what he tried, but he loved how it made him feel. So for him, that's what was driving his business concept of what can I layer into this to have greater viability and create a business that has scalability and ideally sustainability. And so it started with the ingredient focus, but that ingredient went under health and wellness and then also quality. And then he started laying rather themes in with the convenience because when you buy matcha as a powder, you know, they want to add like Tivana where he first had it. They want to also sell you the bowl and, you know, the thing to mix it with to make it so that it doesn't get, um, uh, you know, clusters and stuff of it rather than smooth. So that, for him, it was making it more convenient. So you think, oh, of course beverages are convenient, but there's also a movement towards mixes and dry things that people are adding to their drinks or, you know what I'm saying. So um, for him, 
it was the convenience of it, it was the health awareness, but education became really important because it turns out only like 12% of people really know what uh, matcha even is in the United States. And only, you know, that's really a huge amount of people that don't know what it is. So for him, the transparency is really important in terms of telling the story, being an expert at it, and um, helping people know what's really out there. You know, there's talk about ceremonial grade matcha, for example, but a lot of the matcha that's used really isn't ceremonial grade, you know? Like there's a product that at the natural product show next week um, is a ceremonial grade matcha. Well, it's a line of products. There's actually a couple beverage lines there that are up for their finalists for, you know, awards. And it says ceremonial grade on the front. And he's like, it, they're really, it, that's really not accurate. It's like the whole issue today with, you know, functional beverages and saying they're probiotics. You know, what really are probiotics? Is it the life and active cultures? Is it, are the products that are saying they're probiotics really probiotics? So for him, transparency is going to become more important. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, so now this is really interesting. So how does one go about approaching uh, the ability to identify megatrends, whether they're starting out or they're an existing business, and they've never even thought about this in the first place? Okay, so like anything else, I talk about a couple of major themes. One is industry immersion. Another is setting goals and objectives. Sort of knowing where you're headed. You know, what's your exit strategy? What do you want? So if you're a startup company, you want to be thinking about those themes anyway, and then applying the megatrends to it. And once again, as Javier reiterated, um, the more of the megatrends you have, the greater uh, you know, resonance you're going to have probably with your target audience. So as a startup company, as you're developing your concept, you want to see if you can try and check off every single one of these. And one thing to note is it doesn't have to be your entire line. So the idea of a company that has one item that supports breast cancer and another item that supports a different cause, or a company that overall supports certain things, um, are different ways to solve a problem or an opportunity or something you care about. So when you're coming up with your um, business, you might choose to use some of the megatrends in some of your offerings, but not all of your offerings, or you might choose to use them all over. So the idea of, a, like I talked about spicy a moment ago, um, if something is spicy, um, you may not want to have your entire, you know, beverage company have everything spicy. You might choose to have one flavor that's really hot and exciting that way, um, or have different flavors of heat or different sources of heat, but you don't have to be a, a beverage line that's all about heat. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. So it's the same thing with the megatrends. For a more established company, I think it's a great way to look at your current offering and think about, you know, what are you trying to do if you want to introduce something that's totally new, or if you want to offer a new item within a line, or if you want to, you know, to, to think about that. But also in terms of marketing, you know, how can you leverage these different trends in meaningful ways through your um, other connections with your trade and or consumer um, customers. And so it's really interesting because when I mentioned uh, identifying your customer and what their needs are, you mentioned that sometimes the story comes from the person itself or from the person themselves or from the ingredients or the source of the ingredients. So, uh, like, how do you know how you can uh, know your value proposition? Uh, should it be researching and identifying your customers or should it be coming from a place of 
the story that the person behind the company is a story or that the the ingredient is a story um because for me i thought that learning from your customers and understanding their needs is the most important thing more important than where you get your ingredients and more important than the story of the company right so, uh, can you talk about what you think about that oh i i totally think it's critical but i think that because what you're saying is market opportunity yeah. and i that when i talk about industry immersion that's really key but if you start first with a customer to customer need a lot of times people like think about apple like apple didn't believe that people knew what they wanted they came up with you know the idea of the faster horse is the car you know people aren't going to say i want a car that idea i think for true innovation and things that are really exciting people don't necessarily know yet you do need to match it back to the customer but and you can start with part of the start and can be with the customer but it could also be some other opportunity that's out there you know that you say wow like the idea of sure people like coffee right but and there's a need out there for people who want more energy so the idea of like you know red bull or something or all those other products out there now um, you you want to think about what the customer wants but but sometimes there's other things that are the driving force and then you tie it back and you say who's the right customer because it might be different than where you started so part of concept development I, I like to think of a lot of things as evolution versus revolution and that you're working your way this whole idea of like test marketing you know to learn and see what's working or not because you might think that one customer is your customer but then you might learn it's another so you know, like Justin's with peanut butter thought that by putting a small like ketchup type little packet together, he could target the camper. But it turned out it was a totally different audience and, you know, totally catapulted in a positive way his company. So you may think it's a certain target audience or you may think they have a need, but once you go into market, it's different. So you asked me earlier, Javier, about um, how things have changed and when I was, you know, at Kraft, you know, I worked with my team to, you know, at different times to create business plans, and it was a very traditional approach to, to launching a business. Today, um, you know, I, I did a, a lecture uh, a presentation at the BevNet Boot Camp that was on um, fail fast, learn fast, and about early test marketing and how critical it is. And what I was saying in that is that um, today, instead of it being doing things really where you're dotting your T's, I'm sorry, dotting your I's and crossing your T's, which I still believe in, uh, you need to constantly put a stake in the ground with what do I know today and move forward with it. So the idea of the whole lean stack, lean canvas approach versus a full-fledged business plan um, is really important. And at the fail fast, um, learn fast concept that I was talking about, I was saying that you might think certain things, but it could be other things, and that the key is to get out there, to test it, to keep adjusting it. So understanding your customer is critical, and in no way am I minimizing that, but I'm saying that there are other factors too and variables that could shift who your customer is or what they want or what you're going after based on what you find in the marketplace. It's like you think a certain flavor is going to be your best-selling flavor in a line, but it turns out it's a different one. Um, you know, So for me, uh, it's very important to, to be open to making changes, but always move forward in the right direction, you know, meaning forward. It could be diagonal, it could be direct. You don't want to have to move backwards. So you want to constantly 
judge and learn and, and listen and improve as you go forward. So, you know. Yeah, and so you mentioned fail fast and move fast. And, fast. Uh, so that's what you're saying is uh, to go into like a test market and to learn from that environment and then use that maybe as a feedback loop and what you exactly. learn from there to see if you should be going into something else or... Or adjusting it, you know. And there's lots of ways to be thinking about things to adjust them. And I think that's really important that you learn constantly. Like, I'm, I'm a believer in constantly learning and constantly improving. And that's really, in my opinion, too, you know, about, you know, in terms of how I help companies and people I work with, I really care about um, moving forward in a positive way. And whether that's, you know, on cost reduction and improving margins or whether it's on improving um, volume opportunities and brand loyalty and, you know, everything tied that leverages the megatrends into helping that company achieve it. Um, in fact, I'm going to be doing that um, next week or two weeks from now. I'm going to, next week's the Natural Product Show. In two weeks, I'll be up at uh, the Culinary Institute of America and working with students on, uh, in their entrepreneurship marketing course, they're going to be you know, developing these concepts and we're going to work together to help them further build them. And then I'm going to be presenting um, all about innovation and disruption in the food industry to the uh, Culinary Institute of America Society of Fellows, which includes some of the board members and whatnot, with the intention that this is a great way to think in order to understand opportunities, to be open to more things and to put a new like lens on, you know, how you might profitably grow your business. Yeah. Can we... Like, uh, cause, so all this is like really interesting, but can we go more into like an example of one company? You mentioned the Meta brand, but uh, based on what you've, or the, the Matcha brand, uh, based on what you've worked on with them, uh, have they done any uh, pivoting in what they um, offered and how did they? Yeah, so for example, um, Alex was saying how he has already had six different packaging uh, iterations. He's been very good about trying to keep his costs down. Well, he's an entrepreneur, so this is early stage versus, you know, further along. But the idea of, of really being responsive and learning from what, you know, the feedback is. So, you know, his initial product, um, when he brought it to me to taste, was excellent. It was made in his home. But once he went to scale it up, it was horrible. It was really like, do not sell this. This is like, you know, and he would agree. Um, I jokingly called it Listerine. <laughs> um, and he worked very hard and worked with different people to keep improving the flavor and then learned in the marketplace that he wanted to come out with different flavors. But he used techniques uh, which are like test marketing but not in market because you said in market. I'm saying you can also do it using surveys like, you know, SurveyMonkey or others, uh, MailChimp, to, um, to learn about people's preferences for different things such as, you know, flavors, like how do people rank them. Um, you know, there's other ways to test, such as, in his case, um, he has on his front of his label a lot of information, and over time he's changed it to better communicate what he thinks is most important to his consumer, and also to simplify things, but have the most important things on the front. And even in his story, you know, there's some suggestions that I was suggesting yesterday that will make it more personal and not sounding as mass market and the terms that people use, but rather really being his story, which is a good story. So you're saying that there's a way to test uh, without putting it on the shelf? or I'm saying before, you, there's, you, you can test all the time. Even when you're in market, 
like part of what I talked about in the fail fast, learn fast is even when you're in market and let's say, you know, you need to know, do the promotions that you um, offer get executed? Um, are they, you know, helping what's driving your business? What's driving your business and what can you do better is are two themes that should be constantly there. So you can look at, you know, sales data and say, wait a second, something's going down in this store. And then go in and, and, and constantly learn not just on your product, but also on your marketing, on, you know, what your different accounts are doing to study. But before you're in market with a brand new product, absolutely there's ways to test it without actually putting it on a store shelf. Um, and you absolutely can put it out there where people have to buy it because without doing that, people, I, I, I joke, you know, I said before how the value is the most important thing in a sense. In the end, it's like, is it worth it? Are people going to buy it? You know, when someone gets a taste for free, they can love it because, you know, it's free. So they're comparing it to zero dollars. If they have to pay a dollar for it, their experience is different than if they're spending $2.99, $3.99, $4.99, $6.99, or $10. Like, they're going to have a different expectation of what they want and what's worth it. And so when people taste products without a price that they have to pay for it, the feedback you get isn't as accurate as when you see what really happens in the real world. But what you can do is, first of all, ask people which do you prefer and to rank things. You can also get people to taste yours versus the competitor. So like I was suggesting this to Alex yesterday when in my class he was the guest speaker, but then we were talking about, you know, things about moving forward and learning. And when it comes to tasting, um, you can do a blind tasting to say which do you like and if people and why and people can answer that without having to pay for something because so you're getting insights into you know the total it could be it's not they're not going to see your branding versus the others but they're going to literally see what your your like beverage looks like in a clear container or cup versus another one in a clear container or cup and not know which it is but be able to give you an honest response to the appearance maybe the aroma maybe the texture, maybe the, the initial flavor, then the flavor as it develops in the mouth, the aftertaste, and how it made it feel what you want to learn from it. Is that helpful? Yeah, that is, that is helpful because I'm what I'm trying to get at right now is um, either whether you're a startup or you're an established company that already has the product out there, how can you re-engage with your customer base in order to find out uh, yeah, what they think about the product and how to better understand uh, which trends or they may may resonate with them most. So you're saying uh, do blind taste testings, give out samples, but even though the samples uh, could not necessarily be um, an That's accurate reflection. Flavor. I mean, you can ask people to rank things, like even just on a simple survey. Uh, on your social media, you can ask people, you know, what... Well, you know, I wouldn't use the words, what most resonates with you, but, you know, I would say something, you know, to find out, uh, you know, what do they care most about? And you can give them a list, you know, if on your packaging, I mean, a lot of times, you know, I mean, if you're going after, if you, if you tend to see that you're selling, like, let's say you're selling in gyms and spas, you know, kind of that, what those, that customer is looking for is, is different than, let's say, you know, in a Safeway or a Kroger, uh, there's an overlap, clearly some of the same customers. So the key is 
to know what you want to learn. You know, when I was at Kraft, one of the things that the head of market research told me, which I've always found very valuable, is she'd say, Terry, when you do, you know, like we do a study together, it's really important to think about what do you most want to learn. And if you know there's something that you're going to do regardless of what the research tells you, don't bother asking that question because you're wasting time and money. Let's focus on what, you know, um, she, and she was saying it really in general to everyone that you don't want to ask a question if you know you're going to do what you're going to do. And this is kind of an interesting point because it has to do with your risk profile and your sense of confidence and your experience. And, you know, it's kind of funny. We just saw Sully last night, the movie, and the idea that here was a uh, pilot with 42 years of experience who made some critical decisions that were contrary to maybe what someone doing a simulation would say you should do, but it was based on his gut feel, his experience, his knowledge, his confidence, and so on. In a sense, I would apply that as well to market research and to assessing things. You know, what, what do you want to understand and learn? How is it going to affect what you're going to do? And then you ask the questions that help you figure that out, whether you're doing things online through, you know, questionnaires, whether it's through Facebook, whether it's through Instagram, you know, Twitter, you know, or one-on-ones, uh, focus groups, you know, you have lots of choices for ways to ask people. Um, it could be, you know, even something on your package that people can respond to that you ask them for feedback. Uh, the idea of even like flavor reaction, uh, sorry, flavor responses, like I always liked how Ben and Jerry's got people involved in choosing a flavor. And then if it did really well, they would keep it in the line. You know, I, I love that idea. That, that taps into engagement and empowerment. And then also the social media side where people then want to talk about it uh, because it's their flavor, you know, and it's, it, it fans out. So depending on what you want and what you know and what you don't know, you then make choices of what to go after and then the best way to go after it. Okay, so Terry, um, yeah, we had just gone over the, the mega trends and I wanted to talk more about the company Colonest and... Um, what are some of the challenges that the companies have been facing that you've been helping them succeed in? Sure. Uh, well, as I mentioned earlier, pretty much everyone wants to eventually make a profit. They might want to also do something mission-driven. But in order to make a profit, there's two major things they need to focus on. Uh, one has to do with their margins, which is their, in terms of gross profit margins, the relationship between pricing and cost. Um, and the other has to do with uh, their volume and how to grow their business that way. So if you have the volume and you have the margin, you have the opportunity to grow. So when companies come to me, the two, depending on what their situation is, I might help them with one or the other. So uh, a few stories that I typically share about something that I did that is a great way of thinking when it comes to making a profit um, has to do with the, the part that has to do with cost of goods sold, which is part of that price and cost of goods sold towards margin. And um, what happened is when I was at Kraft, I had this knowledge about line management and how you want to manage a line. And so you want to always say what's working and what's not. And one of the products that I had uh, was bird size mixed vegetables. And in bird size mixed vegetables, we had lima beans, carrots, that was diced, uh, corn kernels, peas, and shortcut green beans. And in looking at them internally, I realized that the lima beans are the most expensive. In fact, they were equal, I think, to the cost of all the ingredients. Um, and therefore, internally, it would make sense to you know choose to maybe have less of them or change them or do something else. 
Uh, so then the next thing is go externally. And to your point, Javier, about always understanding your customer, uh, I knew my customers at that time were moms who were buying vegetables for their families, and all they cared about, really, was um, that their kids eat their vegetables. Uh, today, they care a lot more, well, not even as much as they yet will in the future, about the nutrient density and richness. They really still just want the kids to eat vegetables, whether it's in their beverages or their food. Uh, so I thought also what is another external thing happening in the industry, and it was that, um, you know, kids hate in lima beans, and they were often fighting with their parents and saying, I don't want to eat it. So I realized there was, once again, that idea of the marketing world of a win-win, where by... Um, one, the, the lima beans were an issue. They were a cost. So internally, um, you know, I didn't want them in, so I had three choices. Keep them in, take them out, or change the ratio substituting. And I decided to take them out. Um, and then, and this is once again back to that market research, I didn't feel the need to do market research. My gut said this is the right thing to do. But the next thing that my gut said is, I need, or as a team, we said, we need to communicate it to the consumer. So on the packaging, I put, look, mom, no lima. By doing that, it was fun, but it also communicated it. And if you look today, lima beans are out of six vegetables just about every product. So for those of you who love lima beans, I'm sorry, <laughs> buy lima beans and out of it. But the point is for the majority, it was the right decision. And um, the way I like to think about this and recommend for everyone is to think about this as the lima bean represents ego. Because we often put things into our products and we know that there's a multiple from when you know, you have an ingredient or a package or your labor or whatever it is, by the time it gets to the customer, it's not the same amount. So it's a multiple that that cost. And so often people want to put in the very best of this, like the 1959 Lafayette Rothschild, if you're going to have, you know, wine in your product. You don't need it, you know, but there's this feeling like, oh, you need the gold foil, or you don't need the gold, and so on and so on. So by looking at um, your own businesses, whether you're early stage and you're thinking what to put in it, which is a really important thing before you go out in the marketplace, but also once you're in the marketplace and even very established, um, to constantly be questioning, you know, your cost of goods sold and the, you know, what's in your products and what can you do to, and your pricing too, but what can you do to have a better match with your customer? And it changes too over time depending on what people's needs and wants are. Um, so that's one thing that, you know, Colonex can do is help think about what those things are. On the volume side, one of the things I love doing, I like doing a lot of things, but one of the things I love doing with clients is um, qualitative market research. Uh, given my strong sales background, uh, most recently I, I was part-time international sales manager for Sarah Beth. Um, I ran a brokerage company years ago, a small one, just as a way of learning the sales side of the specialty and natural industry. And uh, before that, when I was at Kraft, I also uh, had sales training, uh, which I requested because I really wanted to understand that side of the business, uh, working, you know, in the region and working with the chains and everyone else. So um, I, I learned that the, by being able to reach people, which I'm really excellent at reaching people I don't know and getting them to talk on the phone and share things they might not otherwise share, I'm really good at learning insights into what's working and not working. And depending on what the goals and objectives are for the company and what they want to learn, I can customize accordingly. So um, recently I finished one for um, around a $100 million company where they're in one segment but want to go into others. So I ended up talking to, you know, major influencers and decision makers and gatekeepers uh, in different segments, five different segments to see where the greatest opportunity appeared to be qualitatively. And in the process, just about everyone I spoke to was interested in that company. 
wanted to um, differentiate themselves versus their competition. They weren't sure how to talk about themselves. And by talking to their current clients and then also people they were no longer working with, as well as people that they sort of had as a gold standard that they wanted to work with, I was able to help them better differentiate themselves and create their story and send their marketing materials to their current brand company based on the input and learning and advice from the interviews. So those are two very, I mean, even for a small company, I've done this, you know, startup or personal, like I had a client who was, an early, was a relatively early stage client. She was in the marketplace. She said, Terry, can you help me with sales? And I said, sure. Uh, you know, I don't want to do a full time. I'll help train you how to do it because I don't want to do it full time. I said, but before we do that, let's just check your business and make sure everything's right. So she went over the strong foundation before you two aggressively go forward. And in checking out the foundation, there were definitely some issues. And the bottom line was that uh, I did some initial market research by talking to some of her accounts and came back with a list of things. And also realized she couldn't expand on her brand. It's really important you own your brand. And um, in doing some you know, quick top line, I realized that also was an issue. So we actually created a totally different brand. We launched you know, at the show, uh, Fancy Food Show, with a new line. And she actually won the Gold Award. Uh, for outstanding products in this category. And um, that research, you know, helped, as well as my own insight, helped to reposition her and then go after the sale. So those are examples okay. of things I, I'm very strong at. You know, as I said, I'm a great brainstormer and I'm really good at problem solving. So I love helping people think in new ways and so forth. And so, um, yeah, I want to get to the close of the interview. And so I just want to ask a few um Final questions. Uh, so, who is your ideal customer, and how are you different from other um, food or beverage consulting companies? Sure. I think my ideal customer. I, I sort of have two different segments, but they overlap. Um, I have this segment that's the earlier stage or entrepreneur because I do a lot of classes. I teach almost at ten places. They're not all on my website, but I do a lot of teaching. Um, and then I have the more established company that is facing some challenge where they want to grow in some way or become more profitable. And I think what they both share uh, is the willingness to learn from someone else and um, to want to do better and to be willing to implement those ideas. And how are you different from other like uh, consulting companies that might offer something similar to you? I think that I'm an educator makes me really different from just about everyone that's my competition. You know, as I said, I'm about to teach. I, this weekend, I, on Sunday, I taught at the Institute of Culinary Education. On Saturday, it was New School Food Studies. Wednesday, it was also New School Food Studies. In two weeks, I'll be teaching at the Culinary Institute of America. I'm doing an event for uh, Kiva, which is a great organization on uh, sales of a panel I'm running. Uh, that has three buyers and a distributor, and we'll have some 55 food entrepreneurs there at a, a, a store in Brooklyn, um, including beverage and food companies. And the intent, you know, that, you know, I've done so many panels over the years and been on boards and been involved in the industry that I think I bring knowledge and experience, but also an educational passion of sharing information and helping and training. So when I do consulting, I can it but I also love training people on how to actually do things themselves. Um, you know, I've done things at Columbia Business School where I went and, you know, I've done panels there and helped with speed consulting. I 
that a lot of space consulting over the years seems very quick at seeing things and very, very good at helping people learn how to do things um, faster than I think others, but also very much the fishing rod, you know, teaching them how to fish and not just telling them what to do, um, making sure that they understand and, and go forward and based on their resources. Turns out, you know, obviously they're different universities, a smaller company, with very different cultures. And so, so it, it's suffering, it's, it's really, you know, the fact that um, both, you know, in addition to being really bright, I'm an instructor, I'm a giver and a mentor, and I like helping and sharing and training and teaching while giving advice and insights. And, and, and also I think my ability, I've been told this before, to reach, hard to reach people and get insights from them that can really help, it's incredibly valuable. And so what are you most proud about um, working at uh, Colonesque? What am I most proud about? I think, in a way, it's making a difference in other people's lives and helping people to feel happier, um, having a more true course of what they want to do by understanding and assessing things. Um, layering values and mission into companies is something I care deeply about. And I feel really good when people do the same. Also helping people sort of see what their strengths are that they can leverage, uh, whether it's an early stage company or a very established company, to understand opportunities in the marketplace and strength that I feel really good when, you know, I'm able to create partnerships that are meaningful and everyone's happy. I think my essence is really about, you know, it is all, all about inspiring and education and making a difference in all that is. But it's really the essence of my essence is happiness, but I, I, I like to be happy and I like to help make other people happy. And uh, if it's in their professional life, it has to do with helping them achieve what they want. And I, I feel very good about that. Yeah. That was interesting for me to work my way through it. But it's really, that's the end game for me. Is I want everyone to be happy. And happiness to be successful in different ways. To be financial success. It could be mission-driven and value success. It could be you know, the work-life balance of figuring out how to have partnerships and delegate, you know, it depends on what's the intention for. And if you can pin down the factor that one factor that has led to the success of your clients, uh, what would it be? Making better choices. I think that that's something I strive for in everything I do with clients is um, knowing and so that has to do a little bit with what you said about the customer understanding, industry immersion. You know, when I do competitive analysis, for example, with someone, the whole focus is on what is the implication to you to make a better choice on everything and anything that we look at. That's really helpful for me to help people see that way. That That's really the essence. And so what advice would you give to someone who is um, either starting out or already has an established company? and uh, wants to grow their business in terms of uh, yeah, margin and also um, volume? Well, I think that when it comes to margin, that you need from the beginning to always look at your cost. You know, on your pricing strategy front, if you're really early stage, the reality is you're probably going to be premium plus because you can't afford to compete on price. Uh, so you have to have enough of these other mega trends and overall values make it worth it for someone to pay more for your initial offering. Um, on the volume side, it's really 
the right match to get that win-win. So understanding, you know, how you're offering and your story and transparency and convenience and all the things that you put into to help them all the time um, match to the people that you're targeting and the locations that you want to reach them at. How are you going to reach them? So it's, it's, it's the volume is all that. And there's so many ways to achieve volume, whether it's, you know, your brand is part of it, but, you know, where are you available? Not just geography, but also sales channels. And what kind of frequency of use are people getting? And is it something that, you know, maybe someone drinks this, but maybe they can use the product too. And like really pushing out to try and think about where are their opportunities on the volume side. So thinking about, I think what's really important is for people to know what they want and to be willing to then invest to get where they want to go. And start small is advice I give to everyone. Even big companies on the new thing, start small. It's like when a chain tries a new product, they might be an established chain, but they're not going to put it in every store. We're going to start to make sure it's working. So on everything you do, think about that in the future, where you're headed. Also, what your exit strategy is, because that can influence how much you want to invest. You know, if you give it to your children in the future and have them involved and grandchildren, you're going to run the business possibly differently than, you know, if you're trying to get it to be bought out, you know, acquired and so the mission of the Specialty Sodas podcast is to share the stories of other entrepreneurs and leaders in the industry, because um, there's value from learning from those who came before you. Um, is there anyone that you admire or would like to learn from in the food or beverage industry and like to see as a future guest? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I actually, at this event coming up, I'm inviting people to bring samples for tasting table and I was just contacted um, by Rebel, R-E-D-D-O, and I think they have some really cool products, and I noticed that one of their products is actually up for an award also at the uh, Expo uh, East show coming up, and I'm going to be meeting with them, and so I, I look forward to learning more. Um, they're leveraging, you know, sort of the idea of the wisdom of the ages and the ingredients that they use and herbs and so on, and I'm curious to taste their products. And if anyone wants to reach out to you, how can they do that? Uh, the best way is uh, go on my website. I have a newsletter, by the way, which has some valuable advice and useful contacts and uh, discounts to industry shows. Uh, my website is C-U-L-I-N-E-S-T, Culinest, and Culinest is Culinary and Best Combined. Um, my email is terry, T-E-R-R-Y, at culinest.com. Uh, share your contact information and um, let me know what you want and see where it goes. And finally, if there's one last one last thing you want people to know about Colonist, uh, what is it? Um, I think that Colonist is great at helping you move in the direction that you want and helping you either define what you want uh, and also seeing what you're really good at and then figuring out how to leverage it and get where you want to go. Also, the brainstorming and building ideas and moving forward in a positive way. I guess the essence is all about helping people move forward towards where you want to go. All right. So once again, this is Terry Frischman. She's the founder and CEO of the food consultancy Colonest, which inspires and helps food startups and more established uh, culinary businesses profitably excel. Uh, we learned about the changes in the environment. Uh, over the years and how 
a company can leverage mega trends to be able to connect with their customers and to create a culture and a brand of trust and transparency. And uh, so I'm thankful for you, uh, Terry, for providing this information. And um, if you guys enjoyed this conversation, please feel free to like and share this episode. You can also subscribe to the Specialty Sodas podcast in iTunes or Google Play, or you can join the email list to stay connected. And uh, please don't forget to leave a review or join the, co- the discussion um, by leaving a comment in the comment box. And we look forward to hearing from you to continue the conversation. Uh, thank you, Terry, for be- being here. And thank you, everyone, for being a part of the Specialty Sodas podcast. See you next time. Thank you, Harry. All right. Thank, thank you. you.